0: Roll call! Long John Silver?
1: Aye, aye, sir!
0: Short Stack Stevens. Aye! One-Eyed Jack? Aye! Black-Eyed Pea? Yeah! Wall-Eyed Pike? Aye! Polly Lobster? Rock? Mad Monty? Aye! Sweetums? Aye! <laughs> old Tom? Aye, aye! Real Old Tom? Aye! Dead Tom? Aye, aye.
1: Cool. <laughs> Clueless, Morgan? Huh?
2: New cycle of creature lands. Arr! Mesmeric fiend variant? oi aye, aye! White removal spell with downside. Accounted for... New doom blade. Arr. Looter variant? Oi. oi Mortal counterspell? Mortal counterspell! Aye! New card with a free spell mechanic that's broken and constructed? Well, you know we didn't forget that, now did we? Oh yeah, that's pretty important. I think we're good. Ark, Hello, me mates, and welcome to another episode of Locky Paper Radio. I really startled Anthony, my co-host, with
1: that introduction, uh... Hi Anthony. Hi, hello Pirate Andy. How's it going? I'm not good at voices. You're doing great. I kind of... Are you inspired by the fact that we just watched Muppet Treasure Island? No, it's a pirate set. I know, but also that...
2: I, I guess I should have taken more. I feel like if I can picture a specific character or person, I'm okay at doing a voice. I'm awful at like, just do this generic style thing in a vacuum. Huh. If I had pictured Billy Bones specifically. Just picture Billy
1: Bones. Okay, let's 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 run it back with your best Billy Bones. (laughs) Oh, I'd love to, Anthony. We just (laughs) simply don't have time because we have to get to
2: our Lost Caverns of Ixalan Cube Community Set Review. And that means we are not alone in this episode. We are joined by Parker Lamascus, Lucky Paper Set Correspondent, Editor-in-Chief. I think you should be the Editor-in-Chief of the website, Parker. You're the one that does all the editing.
0: Ahoy! Great! (laughs) I love being promoted.
2: (laughs) (laughs) How you doing, Parker?
0: I'm good. Um, I think I should be editor to the chief or or something like that.
2: Is that an office joke there? Assistant to the regional manager or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think you you do a really good job with all that stuff. And uh, you've done a great job with this set review, which everyone can go read right now. It's our uh, Lost Caverns of Exelon set perspective is out. It includes the results of our cube community survey, which hopefully many of you listening participated in. Parker, want to run down this survey real quick for the uninitiated?
0: Sure. So... This survey we send out to everybody we can reach in the weeks leading up to and just after the set's release. And we ask cube curators, especially, what cards from the new set they're testing in their cubes or battle boxes or cube-like cuboids. So we ask them which cards, and we ask them to self-rate those cards on a scale of 1 to ten, one being... It's not going to make it, but I got to try it anyways. And 10 being, this is a slam dunk for years to come in my format. And that's by whatever metric the curator chooses, whether that's power level, whether that's appropriateness to the environment or flavor or theme or anything else, just however they self-rate those cards. And then we uh, compile those results in a nice data viz, courtesy of Anthony and write an article about it in a fake pirate voice. (laughs) Yeah,
2: and the goal here is just to capture the cards that the widest variety of cubes are interested in. This is not a, like, ranked list of the best cards in the set. By any means, it is just the cards that happen to tick boxes for the most different kinds of cubes. And so, naturally, we see oftentimes more, like, generic effects kind of floating to the top because... Really narrow, specific build-arounds might be perfect for your cube, but there are plenty of cubes out there that don't have those kinds of effects. It's a way for people that are looking back on the past to have a sense of what people's initial perceptions of this set was for their own cube. Do we have any like big-picture thoughts before we dive into the individual cards? I mean, we can talk about these mechanics briefly and just how they were received, but I think it was kind of as we expected. Maybe I'll throw it to you, Parker. Were you surprised by the general, for example, uh, distaste for a mechanic like Discover among cube designers or the general affection for generically playable removal spells and general affection for, I think, maps tokens seemed like they were pretty well received. Did
0: any of that surprise you? I was a little surprised by the relative popularity of map tokens. It seems like people are willing to test or play, you know, four or five cards that say explore or map tokens on them. Which, which seems high to me, but I guess cube curators are viewing map tokens like a clue or like a treasure or a food or whatever, where it's just part of the trinkets and sometimes you're just using it for uh, the face value and sometimes you're using it to fuel your Oni cult anvil or your artifact synergies or your plus one plus one counter synergies. And so it is a really flexible mechanic mechanically. And it will trigger and be triggered by a lot of different synergistic cards. And I guess, looking back with perfect hindsight, that probably outweighs the complexity of a map token.
1: Yeah, I feel like it strikes a balance of being somewhat novel. It's definitely a new mechanic. It's a new token. But it's also pretty familiar because we've seen Explorer before. So I think that that kind of balance always gets people's attention.
2: I feel like we're in the Trinket Artifact chapter of Magic R&D which the only like other example I can find of this pattern is there was like the early days of Magic. Then there was like the Flame Tongue Kavu days of Magic, where they realized, hey, you know what a really cool play pattern is? Is strapping a spell-like ability to the end of the battlefield ability of a creature, and that became then moving forward like almost the default way that creatures work in a, in a lot of senses. At least you know some of the most powerful creatures. I feel like we're in a phase now where this idea of taking a little trinket effect that would otherwise be attached to a cantrip to make it worth the mana that you're, you're casting it for, or attached to a creature ETB or some other kind of trigger, and just making it an artifact token, that sort of simple translation has made for a lot of flexibility and cool potential deck building and uh, card combinations just by putting that ability on an artifact instead of just on some other kind of card.
0: And to that end, I think map tokens and explore and... In general, just I think what we'll see is some of the generic power of this set. These things are really contributing to some popularity for the Lost Caverns of Ixilon among the respondents to our survey. So the median respondent is testing 11 cards from this set. And that's like pretty significant, but it's also the largest number of this kind for any set of this year. That includes Lord of the Rings, that includes Wilds of Eldraine, March of the Machine, and so, by a narrow margin, Lost Caverns of Ixalan is the most popular set of the year if you're looking at the median number of cards tested. Now, it's not quite the highest rated, but that's slightly different.
2: And also, just anecdotally, I, I see a lot of people that are really excited about this set, saying it's one of the most exciting sets for their cube in a long time. So, by all means, seems like a exciting set for cube designers of all kinds. One last thing I'll say about map tokens and these like trinket artifacts is that Yes, it is complicated because it's another token and because you're and you're collapsing all that complexity to just, you know, create a map token, then you have to know what that is, go get that token. And it's complex in that sense, but in a lot of other senses, it's way simpler than Discover, or especially a mechanic like craft, which just has so many different kinds of things it touches and requires a lot of reading on an individual card basis. Like, even though this has a unique token, it does feel to me in some ways like it is quite a bit simpler than some of the other mechanics in the first place. So I'm not sure that complexity is most people's concern when it comes to map tokens. Like I said, but it seems pretty well received and I'm interested to see if we fast forward two, three years, if we have gotten many more map tokens. I mean, it's clearly a plain agnostic token name, kind of unlike blood. I think there was, that was one of the criticisms of blood tokens was that, it really kind of only made sense on a plane where people were drinking blood, which was not all of the planes, but you know, pretty much all planes have a map. So uh, we could definitely see this coming back in more sets, and I'm curious to see if it will kind of take off like clue tokens and treasure tokens did or if it will be relegated to a more odd corner of trinket token history.
1: Yeah, craft is really the mechanic that we don't see high up on this list in a lot of cards, and I'm frankly not that surprised by it. It yeah. is a double-faced mechanic, which historically a lot of cube designers are less interested in or you know it it just adds another barrier for some people it's also pretty complex and yeah there's just a lot going on there so i'm I'm not so surprised by that
0: yeah something like 75 to 80 percent of our respondents at this time notably we're recording a little early but 75 to 80 percent of our respondents are not testing any craft cards at all so yeah it's it's not super popular and as a point of comparison more than half, I'd say 60% of our respondents are testing at least one card with a map token or explore. So it's really night and day, I think, between those two mechanics, especially in terms of their popularity.
2: Should we dispense with all pleasantries and just dive into these top 10 cards for most cubes from Lost Caverns of Ixilon? Let's do it. All right. Yeah. Starting with number 10, we have Confounding Riddle. This is two and a blue for an instant that says, choose one, look at the top four cards of your library, put one of them into your hand and the rest into your graveyard, or counter target spell unless its controller pays four. Basically, a strict upgrade to Supreme Will, which was a rare just from, uh, I guess it's probably like five or six years ago at this point, but from not too terribly long ago. This is a nice modal three mana spell that actually has me thinking about maybe playing a three mana counterspell in 2023, which is pretty impressive.
0: Supreme Will was an uncommon from Hour of Devastation, but... And the is. rarity of this card
1: is impossible Wait, Supreme tell. Will was an uncommon, really?
0: Yeah, um, there is good news for all of our peasant curators, which is these set symbols all look like common set symbols, so you could play anything in the set if you wanted, I think. No one would blame you or even notice.
2: True. Man, I thought, really thought Supreme Will was a rare. That's weird that my brain did that. <laughs> I'm not sure what there's to say about this card. I mean, I love modal effects. I think... The fact that this fills the graveyard instead of bottoming cards gives it a ton of additional, like fringe application. You know, most of the time, it's not going to matter a whole lot that you're bending those cards instead of putting one on the bottom. But of course, if you're playing any kind of graveyard matters deck or even just like here and there, effects like Delve or Delirium or whatever are really going to benefit from that. That almost feels to me like uh, the difference between. Target player draws a card and you draw a card on a spell. It's like, yeah, most of the time, bottoming or putting in the graveyard, kind of, you know, one way or the other. But every once in a while, you do want to, like, you know, get this additional benefit from the other
1: mode of this card. So, I mean, I think that's very relevant in a lot of environments where you have, you know, flashback. And uh, in this case, we have uh, descend in this set, things like that. I mean, you even talk about how much you love fetch lands. And one of the big things you talk about is just having resources in the graveyard is relevant to a lot of things. It matters. And the spinning three cards is pretty substantial. I think modality is obviously especially valuable on something like a counterspell, which is very niche. You know, you need to have it at the right time. So it makes it much, much more powerful that you just have this this plan B. And yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be so surprised if it's not as much of a plan B as a lot of other modal kind of spells.
0: I do have a comment on why cards like Confounding Riddle are often so highly tested in these surveys. It, It is, like you say, a strict upgrade or nearly strict upgrade to... Supreme Will. And that means a couple things. One, it's easy to evaluate. You know, relative to Dire Flail, which has craft text and nobody's sure how that plays because it's never been legal and constructed before. Confounding Riddle, we have an analog that's already seen tournament play. I think it saw standard play it by did, professionals yeah. at the time. And so you could go back and see, you know, Paulo Vitor D'Amadorosa or somebody like that playing with Supreme Will and figuring out what its play patterns are. You might've been cubing with it already. And so you know that you like the play pattern. And so when you see Confounding Riddle, not only is it easy to evaluate and it's easy to compare it to Supreme Will and say, oh, this is better in most cases, but it's also easy to find a cut, right? Cause you're already playing Supreme Will and you just say, well, I'm gonna swap one out or you are playing, I don't know, Thirst for Discovery or something. And you can swap that instead. So I think all of those factors combined kind of give Confounding Riddle a head start when it comes to popularity among cube curators. Yeah, I think you're right. And we'll see that happen kind of over and over um, throughout these top 10. A lot of the power of this set is located in effects like that
1: next up at number nine in terms of the number of respondents that are testing this card is spyglass siren this is a single blue for a one one siren pirate it's got flying and when it enters the battlefield create a map token almost a third 27 percent of the respondents are testing this and it has a rating of seven out of ten so pretty highly rated by a lot of people i'm surprised to see this here is anyone else surprised to see this
0: here i'm not that surprised I was slightly surprised. Again,
2: like I mentioned. <laughs> we got the whole game. <laughs> yeah. Between us, we've got all the different kinds of surprise you can be. <laughs> I guess people are comparing this to Thraben Inspectors. the only thing I can imagine because that is mm-hmm. such a beloved cube card. And here's another one drop that enters the battlefield and makes a token
1: I mean, you could also, there, there's just lots of easy comparisons you can make here. Obviously, it's uh, Flying Men with Upside. It's also... But no one likes Flying Men. Sort of. People like Flying Men. Come on. People okay, like to play people there. people emotionally Edric, like Flying Men. Flying <laughs> Men is in very few
2: cubes, so it, that would not be precedent for it seeing a lot of playing cubes.
1: You could also compare it to Elvish Visionary, saying, like, this is either going to be a 1-1 that also has a very relevant keyword in flying that is going to draw you a land uh, for that extra one mana, or it's going to be a 1-mana 2-2 two, two flyer. I guess 2-mana two 2-2 two, two flyer, but, you know, you get to portion that out whenever it makes sense. I feel like this card is more powerful than it looks, really.
0: There's also blink synergies and artifact synergies and plus 1, mm-hmm. plus 1 counter synergies. And if your cube is supporting any or all of those, or sacrifice synergies, because you sack or the map Or synergies. Or pirates. Or flying. And so, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there's so many hooks to attach to the other synergies in your cube with this Spyglass Siren.
2: Yeah, I mean, it does have all of the inherent mechanical flexibility of the map tokens. I guess I'm just not that impressed by this card, especially in what so many cubes blue decks want to be doing. Like, I think part of what makes Thurban Inspector so appealing to so many cube designers is that your white deck often has a lot of uses for just, like, having a random creature around. Either you are crewing vehicles with it, you're putting equipment on it, you're sacrificing it to some sack outlet because you're playing a aristocrat's deck or something. Blue having a random extra creature around feels so much less useful to me. And the other thing about Thrabian Inspector is that it's drawing you a card in a color that doesn't often get to draw cards cleanly. Here you're playing blue. You have so much card draw if you want card draw. Why do you want it attached to this, like, conditional little map token? That also, it's worth noting, can get blown out. I mean... How often is it even gonna be worth removing your 1-1 flyer in response to you trying to make it explore with a map token? I'm not sure, but it is an option that can happen to you, which means that token is also to me way less valuable than a clue token. So I'm just surprised because Yeah, I, I just I feel like uh, you know, we talk about how this is not a survey about power level, and it's not, but very often more powerful cards tend to be more interesting to people because They're inherently kind of exploring new territory. A lot of the middling or less powerful cards in the set probably already have analogs from previous Magic's history that you could be playing in their place, and so they tend to not be that exciting to people. I don't know. This one is just surprising to see this high for me,
1: and so highly rated. What if we compare this to Delver of Secrets? Okay, let's. Okay, it's it's that. It's (laughs) it's not. It's kind of like that,
0: and I think like it it looks similar enough if you're on strictly singleton and you want another one mana threat
1: it's even got a boat in the background so if you have a restriction it's like all right of the your pictures <laughs> all your uh, cards have to have boats in the picture this this
2: works great i mean ultimately my i'm really excited to see this as high i'm surprised but i'm also excited because i want nothing more than for people to be playing with more simple and less overtly powerful cards in their cube designs and so i'm really excited to see that our survey is reaching people that are excited about this card
0: our next card is Restless Vince. This is a land. It enters the battlefield tapped. You can tap it to add red or black mana. And for one red black until end of turn, Restless Vince becomes a 2 3 black and red insect creature with Menace. Still a land. And whenever Restless Vince attacks, you may discard a card. If you do, draw a card. This is tested by almost a third. but it might change in the week between recording and the article releasing. And it's got an average rank of 7.4, which is the highest we've discussed so far and the highest outside of the top three.
2: Yeah, very high rating on this. And also it's the most popular of these cycle of creature lands that we see in this set.
0: Right. And I think going back to, you know, the discussion of Confounding Riddle, I think one reason for its popularity among its cycle Is everyone
2: hates Lava Claw Reaches. (laughs)
0: Exactly. How bad Lava Claw Reaches was. You know, with a card like Celestial Colonnade or Creeping Tar Pit, it's not really clear whether you want Restless Reef or Restless um, Anchorage over those effects. But with Restless Vents, it's like very clear, oh, I want this card that's much, much better on power level. And so I think that's part of it, at
1: least. For sure. Yeah, there's a a huge difference in this cycle. Often we'll see cycles kind of like clustered because a lot of people are using whole cycles. But these lands are kind of all over the place. I mean, the Restless Ridgeline is down at only only 11% of people uh, and a much lower rating as well. So yeah, people are really evaluating these on a case-by-case basis.
0: And I think for Ridgeline, that's because Raging Ravine has seen so much historical constructed play. I think it was a player in Jund about 10 years ago in Modern. And so you had people like Reed Duke or whatever playing this and people were forming attachments to it through constructed play. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that you wouldn't want to kind of sacrifice that nostalgia for an uncertain gain in power. But when we're talking about the red black version of the cycle, there's no nostalgia for Lava Claw Reaches and Restless events is pretty clearly more powerful most of the time. So it makes a lot of sense to me.
2: Yeah, it also must be said that I think the rummaging on attack here is one of the more interesting and dynamic effects we see on a creature land. The fact that it actually interacts with the rest of your deck could potentially key off of synergies related to madness or graveyard matters or whatever, uh, which are very common in the black-red color pair specifically, I think is another reason why we see this up here. Even if it was the most powerful of the cycle, if it didn't have this particularly dynamic ability, it might be a little less popular. The seventh most popular card from Lost Caverns of Ixalan is Deep Cavern Bat. This is a creature in the spirit of Mesmeric Fiends and Kaito Freebooters. It's one and a black for a 1-1 with Flying and Lifelink. And when it enters the battlefield, you look at target opponent's hand. You may exile a non-land card from it until Deep Cavern Bat leaves the battlefield. Being tested by 31.3% of our respondents with a rating of 7.3. Pretty straightforward here, right? If you want another... Kitesail Freebooter-esque card, here
1: is one for you, right? Yeah, and I think that giving this a relevant keyword, Mesmeric um, Fiend so often just sits and and doesn't actually get into combat because it's a 1-1, uh, so giving it a relevant keyword that actually, well, multiple relevant keywords that will make this feel more like a dynamic game piece that's doing other stuff rather than just holding onto that card. Yeah, the flying is a huge deal on Kitesail yeah. Freebooter
2: for that exact reason. For my own personal cube design tastes, I'll take the two toughness over the lifelink any day, but I can definitely see if your cube prioritizes things like equipment and other ways to buff power and toughness and you like the lifelink as a keyword ability then this is a really appealing option pretty sick art too
0: yeah and benefits from the same thing as confounding riddle and restless vents where we know how this effect plays kiteself rebooter has seen a lot of constructed and limited in cube play mesmeric fiend was very popular and kind of famous long before that and so easy comparisons are possible with this card and it compares pretty favorably as well
2: thought you were going to name another pro player. You've so far named two. I thought you were going to name a third one when you uh, started talking about... I know about... three
0: pro players. There's <laughs> Bob
1: Marr. Uh-huh. Bob's probably cast a couple Mesmeric Fiends in his day, I would guess. Yeah. All right, next up we have a ridiculous card. Why Why do I have to read this one? <laughs> This it's is not that bad. Just Sentinel read it. of the Nameless it's City. So negative. This is two and a green for a three-four with vigilance. Whenever it enters the battlefield or attacks, create a map token. Yeah, I mean, this this card just does so much. It gets so big. It's being tested by 32% of our respondents with an average rating of 7.3. We talked a fair bit about this card because it's one of the ones I'm excited
2: about for the Bun Magic Cube Parker. But what do you think about Sentinel of the Nameless City? either from a design perspective, or just a pure power level perspective?
0: I'm not sure I have much to say about the design, because we've already discussed map tokens a little bit. I think it is powerful. Yeah, 3 mana, 3, 4 vigilance is, is a pretty good floor, and it has some resilience against removal. The 4 toughness really helps against most red removal, and it continues to accrue value even as it gets into combat. Pretty low risk in combat, too, because you can attack. The vigilance means you aren't opening yourself up to opposing attacks, and you can also continue to snowball value. So um, I really think it's quite powerful. I'm not testing it myself due to some caution about map tokens uh, on complexity grounds in my higher power cube, The Ship of Theseus.
2: It makes me wonder if they were to print Tireless Tracker today what the stats on it would be. <laughs> it's six, a good six. question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I could see myself adding this to my high power cube if I decided that map tokens, you know, if they started to see a bunch of constructed play and everybody was intimately familiar with them.
2: Or if you get four or five more cards in future sets that you also want to include with the same mechanic. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I,
2: I do think it is going to be a persistent bummer that map tokens can only be activated at sorcery speed, specifically with yes, this card. Yeah. One of the cool play patterns of Tiger's Tracker, to me at least, is that you can oftentimes attack with it free of any sort of blocks because of the threat of sacrificing one or more clue tokens, making blocks impossible for your opponent. And then you don't have to sacrifice those tokens. You can then second main phase after you've gotten through with your kind of somewhat unblockable tireless tracker, you can just use your mana to cast more spells and save those clue tokens for later it's going to be kind of, a. I mean, it doesn't make the card much worse. It's not like, and obviously, you know, if you could activate an instant speed, maybe it'd be too broken. It'd be too powerful and not fun for that reason. But I do think that that particular play pattern is going to be kind of like,
1: oh, right, yeah,
2: I forgot. That kind of is annoying.
1: Yeah, I think it's just going to be a little bit confusing because, I mean, the way this card works, like you expect to be able to use it. It kind of indicates you can use those maps right away, but you can't. Uh, at least the the second one when it attacks. Can't but look at that map. Too busy killing guys. They, they might have noticed that and just decided, yeah, let's just give it a, an extra toughness and it'll be fine and a keyword ability and a keyword ability
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay our next card is get lost and it's a one and a white instant destroy target creature enchantment or planeswalker its controller creates two map tokens it is tested by almost 33 percent of our respondents with an average rating of 6.9 yeah i mean i'm starting to sound like a broken record here but it's Similar to these other cards that are either more powerful or slightly differently powerful than well-known effects, so it's like Fateful Absence or Declaration in Stone.
2: And who are some pros that have cast those cards, Parker?
0: Uh, I've run out of pros. There's <laughs> there's Gavin Verhey. <laughs> <laughs> that's I don't have... a
2: pretty that's a pretty bad pull, but all
0: right. <laughs> yeah, Luis Scott Vargas. There's one. There you um, go. Maybe maybe a Jerry
2: Thompson. Maybe a that's right. Andrea Mengucci or Autumn Burchett. Uh,
0: I didn't know. mean to derail your review. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's I was, okay. I thought it was funny. The card's powerful. I like. There's not a lot to say. I think in the last episode you mentioned about how this is especially good against control because they're going to be relatively unlikely to have things to explore onto. So you know, I think it's quite powerful. Again, I'm not testing it until. I can be assured that my players will be familiar with map tokens, or they can be made familiar by just the sheer density of them in my cube. But until then, I am uh, i won't be testing
1: this. I do think this is one of the more interesting drawbacks we've seen on, on a lot of these white spells. I mean, you know, gain some life, draw a card, that's all well and good, but this just adds a lot of like potentially interesting complexity to the board state. I don't have much else
2: to say about this card since we last talked about it. Sometimes after we record our like initial impressions episode or our personal cube editions, I'll have like a clarifying thought and something to add about a card. I don't really have that here other than I think it will vary in how big the downside is pretty dramatically based on your opponent, yeah. which I don't think is true with a card like Fateful Absence or Soul Partition or whatever. It's just like, here's removal with a downside for me, the caster. Uh, and this one is going to be like, yeah, in some situations, they're not going to have a creature to explore with those map tokens and it's just really, really
1: strong. And they do have to have a valid target, right? They can't just crack these maps for an empty board? Correct. Gotta have a target, and it's gotta be your own creature too.
2: Yeah, and then against some other decks, they're gonna have a bunch of little tokens that otherwise you don't have to worry about, but now these map tokens not only have value to them, because they have plenty of creatures to explore with, but also you've made their tokens more valuable in some situations, so... Yeah, I don't know. It's—I uh, think I said in the previous episode that I have. There's no shortage of white removal with downside to choose from, and this is not the one I personally am going to choose. But I can totally understand why some other people are going to choose it.
0: It's also seeing some early hype concerning modern play. Um, I think partly because you can kill Urza's Saga with it. It's unclear to me how an enchantment can be lost and an artifact can't, <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's evidently not part of the design
1: considerations here.
2: Flavor Judge Rules, Enchantments Can't Be Lost, bad card, one
1: star. That is kind of funny in the context of somebody playing Urza Saga, and you're like, hey, how about have a bunch more artifacts? Seems risky. Yeah, it's going to
2: make their next Urza Saga very good. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which is, you know, potentially a problem. Next up is a card that I think I overlooked for my own Bun Magic Cube and will probably end up testing myself despite missing it on my first read-through, and that's Stalactite Stalker. This is one black mana for a creature Goblin Rogue. It is a 1-1 with Menace. It has at the beginning of your end step, if you descended this turn, put a plus one, plus one counter on Stalactite Stalker. Quick reminder, if you descended, just means if a permanent card went to your graveyard from anywhere. Discarded, milled over, left play, whatever. In the case of the Bun Magic Cube, think fetch lands. It also has an activated ability. For two and a black, you can sacrifice it to give target creature minus X minus X to end of turn where X is Stalactite Stalker's power. It's a lot of text on this little guy. He's a nice little guy, but he's got a lot of text on him. (laughs) Ultimately, I am always drawn to one-drops that can scale and be relevant in the late game. And this has two ways it can do that, right? One way is that if you're in the late game and you're trading off resources a lot after a couple turns, this will be maybe big enough to actually brawl despite being a 1-1. The other one being that it can also just function as removal if you need to in the late game for something pretty small, which is a nice flexibility to have... Plus, obviously, the best-case scenario is you play this on turn one with a fetch land, you untap with a 2-2, and then you just keep growing this turn over turn, either by sacrificing more fetch lands, by discarding things, by thought scouring some stuff into your graveyard. There's a lot of ways you can continue to to grow this in the right environment, and I do like me a cheap snowballing creature that ultimately can still just be removed if it becomes too much of a problem. So I think I am going to end up testing this one out, also because I was reminded once again of how just truly complicated Evolved Sleeper is and I'm looking for any reason to sure. play anything other than Evolved
1: Sleeper in the, in the near term. Yeah, I think in a lot of cubes you're just going to be able to consistently trigger this every turn and I I Do mean you is there so? is there a, a clean, lot of cubes? Well, a lot of cubes that I play. <laughs> I, I don't think the regular cube you could you could trigger this most turns. Yeah. I would say half at most. Half half's pretty good. I mean, is there a clean analog for just, like, a 1-mana one 1-1 one, one that grows every turn? Like, it's almost like a Fretwork Colony or a, a Luminarch Aspirant with a little bit less flexibility, but, like, that consistent growing is just relevant in a lot of in a lot of environments.
2: Yeah, if you can't actually trigger it turn over turn, it, it's quite good. I, I think you probably won't be able to as much as you think, but it will depend a lot on the environment, obviously. Yeah. It does have this interesting drawback, too, or advantage, or has an interesting complexity in terms of what it does to potential blocks, like... You can swing in with some throwaway tokens that your True. opponent would otherwise eat, and now they have to answer the question of, do I want to eat that token at the exchange of putting a plus and plus one counter on this stalactite stalker? The answer is probably yes, but it is more things for your opponent to think about in more
1: ways that you can get value off of what's what's already going on in the game otherwise. I guess actually the comparison I want to make is to Knight of the Ebon Legion, which is another thing that if you can consistently deal damage to your opponent, uh, you know, similar, just jumping through a little bit of a hoop gets a counter every turn, plus has this extra ability that's relevant potentially in the late game.
2: Yeah, Knight is great. I think Knight is a lot better than this, and also a play pattern I like more. I think all of the text on Knight is like cohesive, it tells the same story, Mm -hmm. and the threat of activation makes it really relevant in the late game, even if you don't want to spend any mana on it. So this is not Knight of the Ebon Legion for me, but I think it is edging out a card like Evolve Sleeper for my own design goals, on this day at least.
1: It is a lower rating than a lot of the cards that are up here near the top of the list. Like 6.6 is not bad, but it's also not stellar. Yeah, the lowest rating of all the cards we're talking about in the top
2: 10, you gotta go down to number 11, so no taste out before you see a lower rating. So I think people are feeling similarly ambivalent or conflicted like I am about this card in terms of what its actual staying potential will be. But this is a card that I could totally imagine being impressed by after playing with a little
0: bit. I agree that it looks powerful and for the reasons you mentioned. And compared to a card like Evolved Sleeper, it is less complex, but it's still pretty fiddly, which is something that is kind of striking me as I'm reading it. Like, especially the fact that the trigger on instep cares about anything that happened that turn. And so, like, if you absentmindedly play to fetch land and played a big spell and and the spell did stuff and you and your opponent are interacting about that you may forget that you cracked a fetch as your very first game action of the turn
2: skill issue get good scrub
0: (laughs) you know but i'm just saying like um no i know growing it turn by turn thinking about it on your instep but not your opponent's thinking about did my token trigger this well actually not really because it cares about permanent cards but when I milled something, it did with my grist or whatever, and, like... The token
2: thing is actually a... Oh, wait. This the, doesn't trigger on tokens? Tokens do not trigger it, no. Oh, no. Yeah, the token thing is actually my, my biggest complaint about it and the descendant mechanic overall, just because I think it is unintuitive, as yeah. evidenced by Anthony's realization that, oh, no, that actually doesn't trigger it. And by my own anecdote earlier about attacking with inconsequential tokens.
0: Yeah, just a little fiddly, which is not the end of the world, but um, I have played cubes where... You know, every card is a little fiddly, and by the end, I'm just like, yeah, in pain, psychic pain.
2: Yeah, I'm definitely not super high on it, but I do think that I overlooked it in terms of having potential. I'm curious to see what it does, at least in my own cube.
0: Yeah.
1: We have a big jump up to the next card, which is tested by almost 45% of people. It's a lot. This is Malcolm, alluring scoundrel. Yeah, that's just a lot of people. Uh, This is another Siren Pirate. It's got Flash and Flying. It has, whenever Malcolm Alluring Scoundrel deals combat damage to a player, put a Chorus Counter on it, draw a card, then discard a card. If there are four or more Chorus Counters on Malcolm, you may cast the card discarded without paying its mana cost. And this is a 2-1. That's kind of ridiculous. There's a lot going on here. There's definitely a lot going on here. Ultimately, I think... A
2: lot of what's going on here won't matter, and you can basically mm-hmm. treat this as a 2-mana 2-1 flyer that loots when you hit your opponent.
1: Also has flash, just so you can more confidently at least get one attack in. Yep, yeah. that's
2: true. You do get one hit most of the time for free, or at least you get to hold up counter magic, and then if you don't have to counter something, you can still develop your board. I think the card's very powerful. I got some questions as to why I'm not testing this in the Bun Magic cube from listeners, and... The answer is that there's so much removal in my cube that the chance you will ever get to put four chorus counters on this and discard a card and cast it for free are so slim because your opponent will have some removal to do that before it actually matters that you're basically looking at, you know, an upgraded looter ill core or something here. And I actually don't rate looting very highly in cubes like the bun magic cube where you don't have explicit graveyard synergies i do have your deliriums and your delves and stuff but that's really kind of a light sprinkling in my cube i don't actually have any madness decks or reanimator decks or stuff like that that really cares about the graveyard so for me this is like a lot of text and a lot of complexity and a unique counter for what will ultimately play like a merfolk looter that deals your opponent some damage sometimes which Just not enough payoff for all of that complexity for me, personally. You
1: do play Fairy Vandal, though, and I feel like those two just, like, fit perfectly together. They would be a nice little team, but
2: uh, Malcolm, not a fairy for Spellstutter Sprite, so... Okay. Big problem for me.
0: You know, I think I disagree that you don't have big graveyard synergies going on, and that's because the graveyard is the safest zone in your cube from interaction, and so, like... I'm quite interested in fueling Delve or fueling my Uro Escape or turning on Delirium as a way of increasing the game size and like increasing the amount of zones my synergies care about and increasing them in a way such that it's hard for my opponent to interact with that zone unlike my creatures. But that's really kind of a, a side tangent. Um, I agree that this card is like it does lose some power if you're not discarding a flashback spell or a you know reanimating threat or something. Madness Um, card. Madness card. Even so, I think there's a lot of power here, a lot of like appeal and kind of visceral appeal. Imagine just imagine getting the four counters on it, discarding an Ulamog or whatever, and, you know, cheating mana using the chorus counters. That sounds pretty fantastic just from a pure visceral emotions
1: standpoint i mean i just imagine like oh yeah this is great i'm filling out my graveyard to cast treasure cruise and then oh wait i'm just gonna cast treasure cruise for free
0: mm. you love to see it
1: i definitely see the appeal in like the hyper powerful cubes that are
2: designed to do swingy things it's cool that now you have a looter that can also do a super swingy thing which i think some people really liked the flip rona for for similar reasons the fact that it was a looter that could also then turn into an enormous weird eldrazi threat phyrexian threat sorry so i could see this being appealing and like yeah sure this is an upgraded merfolk looter that sometimes lets me free cast ember like in the cube like that i think that's great for a cube like mine i, I still don't think it's there personally
0: yeah I'm, I'm just trying to rationalize why it's the number three card on this list and i think a lot of it has to do with that kind of obvious appeal Oh,
2: yeah, I'm not at all surprised to see this one up here. I expected this to be in the top two or three cards of the set, so not surprised to see Malcolm up here. This next card, Parker, you're going to have to read for Anthony and I and uh, read it very slowly so we can actually figure out what it does because we screwed up the rules text on this one pretty badly when we did our cube first impressions episode.
0: Yes, and that card is Inti, Seneschal of the Sun. It is one and a red for a 2-2 legendary human knight. Whenever you attack, you may discard a card. When you do, put a counter on target attacking creature. It gains trample until end of turn. And whenever you discard one or more cards, exile the top card of your library. You may play that card until your next in step. So we've got a kind of self-fueling discard synergy payoff, but also a snowballing aggressive threat kind of packaged in the same card. Relevant Creature types, human and knight, it's got these synergistic hooks that we talk about, plus one, plus one counters, discard matters, attack triggers, the whole thing. And for that reason, it's tested by 45% of our respondents with an average rating of 7.2.
1: Is this going to be like another Fable of the Mirror Breaker situation where people are going to put this in all their thematic cubes that care about counters and discard and attacking, and then it's just going to be a ridiculous powerhouse?
2: No, because I don't think it's actually that good. Okay, because it reads like it does a lot. Well, what we messed up last week was that I I shortcutted this to discard a card, draw a card, Mm -hmm. and put a counter on something, which it is not. It's just discard a card, put a counter on something. Oh. And you... (laughs) I literally just said, let Parker read it and Uh let us listen very carefully, and you still didn't get it. Yeah. So, you can... The turn you play it, you can only discard a card and put a counter on something and not recoup that card, assuming you have no extra mana floating around. So one of the advantages we talked about was being able to like trigger it or like benefit from its ability the turn you play it. Pretty unlikely that you're going to want to pitch a whole card just to put a plus one, plus one counter on another attacker of a turn you play it. So realistically, this is a lot closer to conspiracy theorists than we speculated i do think it's cool that it cares about more stuff than conspiracy Mm -hmm. theorists i like it more than conspiracy theorists but uh yeah after actually reading the card i've come down considerably on it in my own bun magic cube though it does still have a really cool showcase version so i did pick one up to test
1: anyway just to see how i feel about it it's it's funny how you just get into patterns of like i'm expecting certain text to appear here and so i'm just going to find that i'll be honest i also only read the second paragraph and was like great i'm putting this in the turbo cube and I am saying paragraph, not ability, because that's that's what we're working with these days. Still great in the Turbo Cube. Not, any, Turbo not Turbo any
2: worse in the Turbo yeah. Cube than we initially speculated, but uh, definitely much more reasonable and fair and probably not that great in the Bun Magic Cube, if I'm totally honest.
0: I kind of like the idea of casting him in like Bun Magic on turn five or something. Discarding a spare land, enabling an attack that maybe wasn't possible before the trample and the counter and maybe yeah discarding a card that's situationally unhelpful and digging for more action and having the mana to cast at that turn that seems like a pretty yes. cool thing to me even if on turn two i'd rather play pretty much any other two mana red threat
2: yep that's kind of where i've landed on it too
1: Sorry for getting that wrong, everybody, both in real time and also not catching it in the edit. I'm still getting my head around it because it's like it does discard a card and then give you a new card back right away. It's just not drawing you two cards. It's not draw a card and then also exile one. Yes. Uh, I mean, it does
2: have the... Impulsive draw is a lot worse than drawing a card for a lot of reasons. I mean, it it needs to
1: be said. I think ideally... But it is you can cast until the end of your next turn. So it's not even like it's a dud the first time it attacks if you cast it on turn two. Until
2: your next end step. Right, right. Upcoming end step is going to be your next end step. Until
1: your next end step. This, okay, never mind. (laughs) You should never play with this card. You don't know what Uh, it does. I don't have any idea what this card does. I have no idea what this card does. (laughs) No, you only
2: get to play it that turn. So, you know, the cost obviously is that you can... But
1: if I say next weekend, that means... (laughs) Next weekend means this coming weekend. Next weekend is this weekend...
2: No, actually, it's kind of confusing. It depends on when you say next weekend. If you say it like on Thursday Friday or Thursday, then it means the weekend after. But If you say well, it like Sunday, on on Sunday, next weekend is definitely whatever. It's obviously it is actually fairly complicated in terms of the rules text, if only because of the precedent set by other cards that are similar but not quite exactly the same. So I think even though this does not have as much text, for example, as a selectite stalker, it's actually going to be more tricky to play with and harder to internalize what it does until you've cast it many many times i agree so i guess uh ultimately this has been a piece of performance art about how <laughs> difficult it is to understand inti seneschal of the sun that was something we did on purpose definitely not by accident mm-hmm. by being bad at our jobs we're all
1: the rubber coaches today
2: and that brings us to our number one card from lost caverns of ixalan no surprise to us and i doubt any surprise to you it is bitter triumph one in a black for an instant As an additional cost to cast this spell, discard a card or pay three life, destroy target creature, or planeswalker. Actually, I'm a little surprised to see this is only tested by 55% of our respondents, given that Inti and Malcolm are both being tested by 45%. They're, like, kind of right on its heels.
1: I'm only slightly surprised.
2: And it has a rank of eight, which is the highest ranking card on the entire survey by a good margin. So... Yeah, for all the reasons we talked about. Recognizable cards with understandable effects on the game that are clear upgrades or sidegrades to existing cards tend to rank pretty highly. Bitter Triumph is exactly that for about a billion reasons. Not surprised to see this up here. I thought it'd be tested by more than 55% of people. I gotta be honest. 55 is a lot of people. We have seen cards in the 80s before on our our survey though. So still, I would have expected a few more, but maybe uh, there's enough people out there that are happy enough with their removal suite not to mess with it.
0: I wonder if some people think it's not powerful insofar as you have Infernal Grasp, which is a pay two life to destroy target creature. Um, Yeah,
2: how many people are testing that? You keep talking. I'll look it up.
0: Why would I pay another life or even worse, discard a card? And if my cube doesn't have a Madness theme or a Reanimator theme or a Graveyard theme, it's harder to turn discard a card into Upside and three life is demonstrably worse than two life and you might not need to destroy planeswalkers specifically because you have aggressive creatures or you don't play any planeswalkers because you're a boomer and if you do we still love you to me it does read worse than infernal grasp like it's less fun to read but i don't know that's purely emotional that
2: seems like a really small margin to me like yeah there's something really elegant about the simplicity of infernal grasp which I did look up, and that was being tested by 63% of our respondents with a rank of 8.5, which is around 10% more than we're looking at here with Bitter Triumph. I think Bitter Triumph is the much more interesting card, though, right? Like, it effectively does exactly what Infernal Grasp does. It does cost you one more life, but in exchange, you get to kill Planeswalkers, which is a big upside, and in so many environments, we talked about the discard mattering, the graveyard mattering, like, having the option to discard something. Like, this just seems like a much more... Interesting and dynamic game piece for so many more cubes. That yeah, I I mean, ultimately we're talking about small numbers here. It got fifty-five percent of testers compared to sixty-three percent. I just thought it would be, if anything, higher than Infernal Grasp, but I I guess it's just not as exciting to people as I think it should be.
1: I do appreciate that some cards that have like a a required life payment at a certain point, if you're down to two life, it's kind of like oh, I've I've almost lost, and also a bunch of my cards are now literally uncastable. So this having an alternate mode, I think, does make it a little bit more dynamic. Yeah. Yeah,
2: I, I I love this card for all the reasons I mentioned, and uh, I'm glad that a lot of people like it, but I guess I'm just, you know, and even Infernal Grasp was not the most popular card for Midnight Hunt, which was Consider, which was tested by 71% of people, and honestly, like, the relationship between Opt and Consider feels very similar to me, to the relationship between Infernal Grasp and Bitter Triumph, that one life being the only difference. Does that one life matter that much to people, you think?
1: I mean, it's also like, a choice of downsides is less fun to read and exciting than, ooh, I get to uh, do opt, but better.
2: Is it less fun to read a choice of downsides? I feel like people like to choose. And you can make one of those downsides an upside. You can make them both an upside if you're playing Death Shadow. That's true. Not everyone. I also think it's notable
0: that Consider is simply Surveil One, draw a card, which is like. It
2: wasn't at the time of printing, though. At the time of printing, it was not actually shortcutted to Surveil One.
0: Yeah. I guess that makes sense. But both of those cards are slightly more elegant to read, I think. Uh, you know whatever like it it doesn't really matter or
2: yeah we don't we don't have to like you know uh, interrogate this in great detail I guess I'm just a little surprised this wasn't like 70% instead of 55% but nonetheless the most popular card in the set and that comes as no surprise I was not shocked to see that were there any other standouts that were not in the
1: top 10 we wanted to call attention to I was a little surprised to see belligerent yearling so far down. This is the (laughs) one in a red for a 3-2 with trample and some flavor text. But, I mean, (laughs) only 7% of people?
2: (laughs) We can agree in most environments that uh, an additional paragraph would be a downside from a cube design perspective. It's just distractive text most of the time. Yeah, yeah, fair. There's so few other dinosaurs running around most cubes that... How much above right is even a 2-mana 3-2 trample? I mean, it's probably not not anymore. Yeah, I don't think it's even that great anymore in terms of uh,
0: the raw stats there is goblin tomb raider as the highest tested common in the set now i know it's hard to tell because the set symbols all look the same but this is down in the 10 percent range of being tested you know it's an artifact matters aggressive creature and and i think it's neat but also interesting that there are so many rares and uncommons above it in popularity
2: Here's a question for both of you. What do you think the highest ranked card that you can't draw one or more very obvious parallels to existing cards is in this set? Like, I think maybe Trumpeting Carnosaur is enough different that you can't, like, point to one specific thing and say, oh, this is just that but slightly different, which it must be said, like, as magic continues to go on, we're just going to have more and more precedent, and it's going to be easier to say, like, well, all these cards are the same card, but, you know... Reshuffled and the costs are slightly juggled around. But I think Trumpeting Carnosaur is actually kind of unique. This is uh, down at number 12 on the survey being tested by 20% of people with a ranking of 6.7. It is four red, red for a seven, six with trample. And when it enters the battlefield, discover five. So that's just an ETB. doesn't matter if you cast it and discover five again is basically cascade for mana of value five or less. And it has two and a red discard Trumpeting Carnosaur. It deals three damage to target creature or planeswalker. Really cool card, I think, for reanimator decks or decks that otherwise care about getting a big creature into the graveyard, because it's just a removal spell. Like, the main mode of this card in most cubes is going to be cast it for three mana to bolt something uncounterably, and then if you get to six mana, you get to have this, like, big cascade roll of the dice, which we did mention when we talked about the discover mechanic on our first episode that high discover numbers are going to be a lot more high variance, because... If this is costed, assuming you can hit a 5-drop sometimes, but a lot of times you're going to hit a 1 or 2, and then it's not looking so hot. I think a card's actually pretty unique, and uh, I can't really think of any obvious parallels to other cards in
1: existence. There's a couple like big adventure creatures, but yeah, I'm trying to find a parallel. It just feels very familiar, to be honest.
0: There's also Titanoth Rex, and I think it's Void Beckoner from Iquoria, and they discard themselves to have an effect. And I think it's cycling in that case, but they're also huge dinos that bend themselves.
2: Yeah, much I think less relevant effects than the three damage of something here. But yeah, for sure. That was the yeah. first that was the first comparison I thought of too. I guess what I'm saying is like I wish it was possible to talk about these cards without citing all the comparisons, right? I think it's more interesting to try and talk about them in a vacuum than to like point out all the things that they share with other cards in Magic's past, but it doesn't make sense to do that when there are so many precedents for so many of these cards.
0: Yeah. The cards that don't have much precedent are often the craft cards in this set and some of the discover designs as well, but they're all very far down the list. Yeah. You know, part of that is the double faced card cost to complexity and kind of logistical ease in paper cube. Um, and we've seen in sets before that, that kind of penalizes otherwise interesting designs. Like there's some flail somewhere whose name I keep forgetting dire flail, it's pretty much bone splitter on the front side, but the fact that it has all of this additive distraction and complexity and logistic hurdles that does drop it down the rankings. And and it's just kind of like that for a lot of the more interesting designs in this set.
1: What about the, uh, the cycle of common lands? At least I think they're common. That enter the battlefield tapped and also have the five mana discover four sacrifice them effects. Those are kind of novel. I think they're pretty regular. And we've seen basilicas and other like lands that buy you back a cart in some way, but discover is a little bit more of an exciting mechanic. I think
2: it's definitely exciting. Exciting in the same way casting gambles exciting.
0: Yeah. I think they're pretty regular as well. I think they'd play well in retail limited. I did get a couple of drafts of lost caverns in over the weekend and I'm playing a couple of caves in, in most of my decks and the discover has frequently been relevant You know, sometimes you just, like, none of the cards in my hand help me, and so I'm just gambling on this Discover. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. And it hasn't worked for me yet, but uh, when it does, it'll be really cool.
2: Anything else before we uh, we close out? Boys, we did a good job. We did this one uh, nice and tidy, nice and quick. Keep it under an hour. Incredible.
0: Yeah, if you want us to go longer, then add more comments in the surveys. I don't know what to say.
1: Truly. I'm being circled by the pod dog, so... The pod dog? Oh, podcast dog. Podcast dog. I was thinking
2: draft pod. My podcast dog. Why is she... Eh, Whatever. Well, cool. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to our Lost Caverns of Ixalan set review. Thank you, Parker, for doing all the hard work to compile all these results and make a nice little page for us to review. And everyone should check out Parker's article to read the results in more detail. We only... Covered the top 10 cards here, but there are hundreds in the results. So if you want to see the long tail of all the cards that people are interested in, you should check that out on luckypaper.co. And with that, that's the end of this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Thank you for tuning in. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. The show is produced by Anthony Parker and I thinking really hard about magic cards and then speaking into microphones about it
1: trying really hard to figure out what they do, and sometimes not getting it right.
0: Trying really hard... To remember the name of Magic Pros,
2: <laughs> it's it's amazing how hard it is to actually just tell your brain to stop shortcutting things. Mm-hmm. I, I've often thought that I would be a much better magic player if, at the beginning of my turn, if you just I
1: just read, read the read cards. all the cards from scratch.
2: I mean, yeah, like or even just like hear the cards I'm planning on casting. Let me like or when you cast a card, let me just read it, read every word on it with my eyeballs, let my brain process it, and it's so hard to actually force yourself to do that. It feels like. Your brain just doesn't want to. It wants to cut every corner possible. Brains, the ultimate enemy of being good at magic the gathering.